Good morning, Life Church Livonia, and welcome. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church Livonia. Welcome to our new series, Life as Worship. When you hear the word worship, what comes to mind for you? Is it singing? Is it stained glass? Is it closed eyes and raised hands? Is it bowing? Is it kneeling? Is it praying on mats? Is it meditation? Is it nature? Whatever comes to your mind when you hear the word worship, the Bible describes that all of life is meant to be worshiped, but what does that mean? Over the next five weeks, we will be discovering what worship is and how we live our lives as worship to God. Part of my heart in doing this series at this point in the year is that our church is in the middle of our building search. Um, We've been in this building search for a little over two years now. At first, we were just trying to get a lay of the land and try to figure out, okay, should we start looking for a building now? Is this what God wants us to do? And it became very clear that he did. And so a year and about four or five months ago, we launched our home campaign. And many of you have given so sacrificially to that, uh, myself and my wife, Amber included. And we've raised money. And now here we are. We find ourselves, after looking at many potential options, uh, looking to hopefully move into a facility before June. We've been fasting and praying one day a week leading up to Easter, praying that God would move in miraculous power so that we might be in our new home before the summer. And the scripture we're going to look at today is the scripture that kind of kicked this whole series off for me. This was in my own personal quiet time about two months ago, and God really impressed this story, this narrative on my heart. And I just felt like, man, this has got to be us. We have to do this. And that is part of what gave birth to this series. But before we jump into that, I want to tell you a little story. In 2005, an author named David Foster Wallace delivered a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. For those who don't know, Wallace is one of the most celebrated and influential writers of the last 100 years in America. He was a tortured artist, but a brilliant thinker. He's a classic example of postmodern thinking and writing. And this speech, in his postmodern way, was given in Wallace's metaskeptical style. Uh, And it was so powerful, actually, it was later published as an essay called This is Water. Now, Wallace was not a Christian, as far as we know. But in this speech to this group of graduating college students, he talked about worship quite a bit. And this is what he had to say. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Worship is a human thing. It's not just a religious thing, and there's not a human being on the planet that doesn't worship. And to help us understand this, I want to take actually the beginning of our time here 
just to look at what this word worship means. This is an English word uh, that comes from, etymologically, an old Anglo-Saxon word. The, the first part of it, it's a contraction, actually. The first part is from the word worth, right? What is worthy? The second part is from the old Anglo-Saxon word ship, which transformed into becoming the word shape. So the word worship literally means to shape my life around something of worth. Whether we're religious or not, whether we're thoughtful or not, whether we're even conscious about it or not, all of us form our lives around things that we find worthy. We have things at our center that drive us. Whatever drives us, like money, sex, success, approval, control, anxiety, power, fear, these things don't just drive us, they form us. And I agree with Professor Wallace. Anything other than God will shape us in its image and then spit us out, leaving us unsatisfied. But I would go even a step further with that. I would say that not only do these things form us, but these are also the things we look to to save us when life is out of control. Life is full of difficult and unexpected things, isn't it? There's more outside of our control than we would often like to admit. And sometimes everything comes to a head and we just find ourselves in a crisis. Maybe you find yourself in a financial situation that developed suddenly and without warning and you don't know what you're going to do. Maybe you find yourself in a relationship that is falling apart and it seems so sudden and abrupt. Maybe there's been an unexpected death in your family and it's come as a shock and now you're not sure how to move forward. Maybe there's been a work crisis that you didn't see coming and now you don't think you have the time to rectify it. Maybe you had a sudden diagnosis and overnight your world has been turned upside down. Whatever challenges of life are coming to you today and that you are coming to this service with, the call and the cry of the Bible is that the only worthy center of our worship is God. Because not only do, as we shape our lives around Him do we move into flourishing, but He is the only one who can save us. He alone is Savior. And what is impossible for us is possible for Him. So my hope today is that we take a pause and we begin to examine what it is we worship. What's the center that we're shaping ourselves around? And then I want to answer the question, what does it look like to worship God? Is it just singing? Is it trying to do morally good things? Is it church attendance or is it something more? Like I said, the, the scripture that I wanted to talk about today that I kind of kicked the whole uh, burden for this series off in me is one that uh, I read in my personal quiet time a number of months ago, and it's going to be out of Second Chronicles 20. So if you have your Bible app or a Bible at home, please open to that. And this is the story, one of the many stories of a king named Jehoshaphat. And this is how the story begins. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hezazen Tamor, that is, En Gedi. Okay, I don't know how your ancient geography is, but I wanted to show you a couple things. So in this map here, here we have Israel, we have Aaron, Aram, I'm sorry, <laughs> we have Judah, which is where the, the story is taking place. Israel's the northern kingdom. They were once one kingdom after a civil war. They're now two. And then Aram, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Okay, so this place that he's talking about, the Hezaz and Tamar, the En Gedi, that's over here. That's like basically the, the Judean side of the Dead Sea. All right. And so what he's saying is Ammon, Moab, and Edom all decided that they were going to band together and that they're going to take over Judah. 
and this three-nation army they came with no warning. By the time he's getting the news, they're not mobilizing over here. By the time he's getting the news, the army is already right here. They're so close to Jerusalem. Danger and death are on their back doorstep and nobody knew. Up to this point, Jehoshaphat's reign has been largely prosperous. He's been a godly king. He's done what pleases the Lord for the most part. The kingdom hasn't really been in a lot of wars. And then out of the blue, with no warning, this crisis develops. Has that ever happened to you? He doesn't even know something bad is going to happen until it's literally upon him. And he doesn't know what to do about that. I don't know how you respond in those moments. But our moments of crisis are often about us and our family's security. In Jehoshaphat's case, it's about him, his family, and over a million other people. All whose very survival depends on how they respond to this threat. And this is what happens. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to the Lord. I love that it both says, by the way, he was afraid and then that he set his face to seek the Lord. I love how human that is and I love how godly that is. Jehoshaphat doesn't deny his fear or try to ignore it or brush it aside. He acknowledges it. And then instead of giving power to his fear by playing out all the worst case scenarios and trying to come up with plans for A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, like many of us do, he immediately jumps to seeking the Lord. And not just privately, but corporately. He's sharing the news and he's getting the whole country to stop, to fast, and to pray together. Jehoshaphat's life is one that is centered around God and around following him. He feels the fear, but he doesn't let it become his master or his decision maker or the center around which his life revolves. This is what happens next. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God? Drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affection and our affliction, and you will hear and save us. So once all the people have gathered, Jehoshaphat calls on the Lord. His prayer, to me, it seems to be this rehearsal of who God is and what God has done. And he's not saying this to remind God. I think he's saying this to remind the people. Jehoshaphat begins meeting this very real and life-threatening situation by feeling his fear, by seeking God communally, and then by reminding the group of who God is and what he has done. He even calls back the things that Solomon prayed and even promises that God made to Moses. After he rehearses the story of God's provisions, Jehoshaphat makes his ask. He says, And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh God, our, oh our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. 
We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. His last two sentences are my favorite. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. How many times have you felt powerless to the circumstances of life? How many times have things felt out of control, felt terrifying, felt overwhelming, felt like you can't catch a break, felt like no matter what you do, things are not going to turn out the way you hope? When was the last time a crisis struck and you felt powerless and didn't know what to do? And no matter what you're trying, the solution keeps evading you. Jehoshaphat is there, and then some. But instead of allowing his fear to consume him, he comes to the Lord, as C.S. Lewis says, with what is in him, not what ought to be in him. And Jehoshaphat, he feels the fear. He turns to God, he seeks him in community, he remembers who God is, and then he asks God to save them. This is not simply a knee-jerk reaction. Jehoshaphat is leading both himself and his people to center themselves around God instead of centering themselves around their fears of the future. So if you're here today and you're feeling overwhelmed right now, be it whatever situation in life, be it material, house, car, family, parents, children, marriage, fill in the blank, school, homework, friends, whatever it is, wherever you're feeling overwhelmed right now, this is an invitation for us to just pause and say, God, I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Let's see what happens next. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jer Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So God speaks to the group as they pray and fast through a prophet in their midst. And now they have a choice. Do they trust this prophet? Can you hear the skeptics? I know my inner skeptic comes up a little bit like, you know, is he really hearing from the Lord? I mean, is he just saying what we want to hear? I mean, not every prophet in the past has been from God. Sometimes they lie. Their choices, they act in line with fear or with faith. Are they going to let the what-ifs and what-might-bes determine their next steps? Or are they going to walk out on that battlefield trusting that somehow, someway, God is going to provide? What's funny to me is fear and faith are actually so similar. In fact, acting on our fears is an act of faith. Faith is, I can't prove it, but I have enough reason to believe it's true that I'm going to act on it. Right now, the people can't prove their fears. They can't prove they're going to lose this war. They can't prove the threat is as menacing as they believe it is. Nor can they prove that the prophet who just spoke is from God. But they are going to allow one of these to shape their behavior and their response. If they choose fear, they're having faith. It's just in the wrong direction. 
And the section ends with this. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. The Hebrew word here that's used for worship is this word shachah. Say that to your friend next to you at home. And this literally means to bow down. And isn't that interesting that one of the words so often translated as worship in the Bible is the physical act of getting on the floor, of bowing down, of putting myself lower than another. And it's not just that way in the Old Testament either. One of the Greek words for worship used in the New Testament is this word proskuneo. And pros is where we get our word prostrate from, to lie down, to bow down, to get low. And then kuneo, people debate, is it this word or this word? One interpretation of it is kuneo comes from the word kiss, meaning to bow low and kiss, imaged in the woman who uh, kisses Jesus' feet in the New Testament. Another possible interpretation of this is the word, it comes from the word dog, which would mean to bow low and sit submissively like a dog next to his master as he licks his master's hand. That meaning that throughout this series, we're going to be, in general, we're going to be talking about several different words for worship throughout this series. But it's interesting that in Old and New Testaments, we see this physical act of lying prostrate, of bowing down, of being in submission uh, as worship. Through this act of falling down before God, they are saying with their bodies, our lives are submitted to you. We trust that you will save us. We believe you're not going to let us down. We fling ourselves before you, and we believe you're going to take care of us. And after they bow, they get up, and they begin to sing songs of praise. A cool side note here. Uh, The word here used for praise is the Hebrew word halal, which is where we get the word hallelujah from. The ouya part, the luya, that's a contraction, a shorthand way of saying Yahweh. And so literally the word hallelujah comes, it literally means praise be to Yahweh. Hallelujah. Amazing. So imagine this scene with me. These people are anxious. They're burdened. They're terrified for their lives. They fast and pray. They're seeking God. They want to know what God is going to do. They need him to intervene and they fall prostrate before him. A man stands up and says, hear the word of the Lord Israel. And he speaks this word that God is going to take care of him. It's his battle, not theirs. And from the midst of the people on the ground, a few of the worship leaders jump up and start shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah, over and over again. It's a beautiful scene, but this is what happens the next day. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were singing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. So they went before the army and say, uh, so they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so next day they begin marching out to the battlefield. They can't prove this will work, but they are letting their faith in God form their lives. Get this image in your mind with me. They leave the city gates. They're literally walking towards the thing they are powerless against. And who's at the front of the army? The worship leaders, (laughs) the musicians. They are literally heading into battle, leading the front lines with songs of praise, trusting that somehow, some way, as they fight with worship, God will fight 
for them. And then the Bible says this. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoils. It was so much. So as the people began to sing and to worship and to praise God, God won the battle. You know, the battle they were sure they were going to lose. You know, the battle they were powerless against. The, the battle that was the source of all their fears and anxieties and worry. The, the battle that was the very threat on their lives. That battle was not won by brilliant strategy. It was not won with a sword. It was not won with a spear. But it was won with the praises of God's people. Their praise wasn't just wishful thinking that ignored the facts of reality. Their praise was a weapon that changed reality. When they finally reached the field of their fears, the battle was over and God had won it. The work didn't even end up being the battle. It was harder to receive the quantity of blessing than it was to fight the battle. Now, it, the Bible doesn't give us an explicit timeline but you have this mounting threat. It's right at your doorstep. He says he puts out word to all the towns of Judah. But, you know, depending on how you interpret that, it could be as little as two days or so that happened from, oh my gosh, we found out about this threat to their marching out to battle. That's a possibility here. Which means if it took two days to find out about this threat, to seek and praise God and to march out to battle, it took three days to inherit all the blessings from the battle. Okay? Which means it's very possible. It took them longer to receive all of God's blessings than it took them to worry to turn to him and for him to provide. The power of God is so overwhelmingly good, so overwhelmingly powerful, so overwhelmingly kind that his blessings are literally bigger than their fears. And what paved the way for that was worship. But Jehoshaphat's worship was more than bowing down, was more than fasting, was more than singing. It was all those. And Jehoshaphat's worship was dependence. He formed and shaped his life around his dependence on God. When the unwinnable battle showed up at his doorstep, Jehoshaphat depended on God. When it seemed like all was lost, Jehoshaphat depended on God. When their faith seemed like just a hope, Jehoshaphat depended on God. One of my favorite musical artists, a gentleman named John Mark McMillan, who I'm very grateful we've had the opportunity to play a show with in my band. He has this song called Counting On. And some of the lyrics are these. When the night stops pushing up the day, when the miles drop me on the open plains, when I've lost grace with the lady of the dawn, you're what I'm counting on. Where the hounds run and track me in my sleep, when I can't trust the company I keep, when I push past the point of pressing on, you're what I'm counting on. In an interview with John Mark McMillan, he said his heart in writing this song was to take a leap of faith in trusting in God. The way he described it is he said, okay, Lord, I'm at this edge of a cliff here. 
And if I jump, there's no net. There's no bungee cord. There's no parachute. There's just you. You're what I've got. You're all I have. And if you let me drop, that's it. So I'm going to jump. But Jesus, please catch me. Because you're what I'm counting on. So beautiful. I call these lyrics to mind often when I need faith and when I need to be reminded of God's goodness. But that kind of dependence, that is what characterizes a life as worship. So I'm just wondering today, where do you feel overwhelmed? Where do you feel afraid? Where do you feel dismayed? Where are the places in your life that you need an intervention beyond your own? Is it a job opportunity or a health situation? Is it in your children or your desire for a spouse? Is it your marriage, maybe your relationships from your family? Is it financial or is it with your housing? Is it wherever, uh, where is it that you, you feel that danger is looming right at the threshold of your life and you don't know what you're going to do about it? I also wonder what's at the center of your life? What are you counting on? Is it money? Is it your partner? Is it a doctor, a medication, a diagnosis? Is it yourself? This is an invitation from God to pause and to put him at the center, to feel your fear and then turn to God and say, I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. Yes, I'm afraid, but I trust you. You are what I'm counting on. And this is an opportunity to praise him before the battle is won. Begin to worship. Begin to bow down before the King of Kings. Let him tell you what to do. Let him go before you. Let him fight the battle. Corporately right now, we're in a similar place. Right now, we're in a building search process. We've turned in a letter of intent on a property. And we're waiting to hear back from the seller. We're also waiting to hear back from our denominational offices to see our conference offices to see if they're going to co-sign our mortgage or not. We're also on hold with the city and a number of things that could take potentially a long time. And we need to be out of homes by June. We are facing many barriers. The barrier of the city, the barrier of our conference, the barrier of our financing, the barrier of this timeline, the possibility of the seller refusing. This is impossible in human wisdom and power. But it, what is impossible for us is possible with God. So here we are. As a church, danger is at our doorstep, catastrophe possibly around the corner, but we are not going to give way to our fear. We're going to acknowledge it, we're going to feel it, and we're going to turn to God because He is who we are counting on. We will not live in fear, we will not live in what-ifs, we will not depend on our own strength, but we will depend on the strength of God Almighty who made the heavens and the earth, for it is He and He alone whom we worship. Friends, I am confident as we commit ourselves to growing as worshipers throughout this series, we will see amazing things as God goes before us and wins the battles that we are powerless to win on our own. The battles we have personally and the battles we have corporately. I believe God is calling us to a radical faith that makes us into radical worshipers. Our worship must be an expression of our faith, not as a reaction to God fulfilling his promises, not as a reaction to him taking care of us, but even before it begins because of who he is because our lives are shaped by him not by our circumstances we don't worship our crises we don't worship our fears we worship him and so our lives are formed around him 
Without faith, not only can we worship, but friends, we can't even believe the gospel without this kind of faith. The kind of faith Jehoshaphat showed is a kind of faith that is willing to bet his life. I cannot believe that Jesus would save me from sins and from hell if I'm not willing to bet my life on it. And yet, there is something in us that resists. We're drawn towards the worship of other saviors and lesser things. We want to circle around ourselves, around our comfort, around our temporary happiness, our security, our power, our pleasure. And it's hard for us to admit how weak and blind and vulnerable our sin actually makes us. Paul David Tripp in his book, How People Change, says this, We don't like to think that we need wisdom and correction daily. We prefer the life of our own self-sufficiency. Surely we can recognize the blindness and foolishness in others, but we like to think that we're the exceptions to the rule. It is uncomfortable to see ourselves as needy and weak, but we are. And that is exactly why Christ is the only answer. Yet our self-righteousness dies hard. We want to be at the center of our world, so we tend to reduce the gospel to comfortable elements, none of which does justice to the message of grace found in Christ. The story of God fighting the battle and saving Israel from certain destruction, this is the core of the Christian message. It's not just a historical fact that happened with Jehoshaphat. This is the story of all stories. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And the fruit of our sin is death. And none of us are stronger than death. It is the unwinnable battle. But we have lived and we do live outside of God's design. And we have broken the world as a result. And death itself is the inevitable reality. But Jesus came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life, fully God and fully human. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, conquering death in the grave, offering us eternal life that starts now. When we believe in Jesus and we worship him, allowing our lives to be shaped by him, he wins the unwinnable battle and saves us from certain death. Maybe you're here today and you either don't know Jesus or you've drifted far from him. And if that's you, I want to invite you to come home. I want to invite you to remove the lesser things. I want you to just admit you cannot do it on your own. You know it's not possible. You know that even if you can figure out this circumstance, at the end of the day, death is still the master. It wins unless we trust in the one who has conquered it. Only God can save you. He made you. Only he can sustain you. And you were made for a relationship with him. He longs to draw you close. He longs to provide for you. He loves to be kind to you. He loves to forgive. He loves to draw you near because he is your father. But you must take a step of faith. And if that's you, I want you to pray with me in a minute. And if you're here and you do know Christ, you're a fellow brother or sister in Jesus, but something in your world feels like danger is lurking at the door, Christian brothers and sisters, remember, you have trusted in Christ for your eternal salvation. You've trusted him with your life and with your life after death. Surely you can trust him with the house and with the car. Surely you can trust him with the parent or with the child or with the spouse. Surely you can trust him with the diagnosis or the medication. Surely you can trust him for the doctor and for the healing. We can trust him with the city. We can trust him with the conference. We can trust him with the timeline. We can trust him with the building. We are not going to live in the fear that our fears are stronger than God. We're going to turn to the Lord. And we're going to do that together right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just lift up our worries, our stresses, and our concerns to you. 
Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Father, we cannot see a way through some of these circumstances, but we trust that Jesus came from heaven to earth to live the perfect life as your son. We trust he died on the cross for our sins. We believe he rose from the dead. And when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we too will experience a resurrection from the dead. God, we trust you. We trust you with our futures. We trust you with our pasts. And we trust you in the present. We trust you to provide for us. We trust you to take care of us. We trust you for our healing. We trust you for this building. We trust you to lead us through the valleys of the shadows of death and into life and life in all its fullness. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Father, receive our sacrifice of praise as a beautiful offering. And as we worship you, as we praise you, as we pray, we pray that you would move and fight our battles that we cannot win. And Lord, we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you prayed with me today, I want to invite you to fill out that connection card on the digital bulletin. We want to connect with you. We want to walk alongside you. And we want to help you follow Jesus as you experience life and life in all its fullness. And if there's some kind of need that you're struggling with, let us know. Life is a group project, brothers and sisters. You don't have to do this alone. We are a community. And no matter what happens, we're going to worship God. And my uncle uh, has this wonderful line about faith. He says, faith is believing despite the evidence and then watching the evidence change. And that's what we're going to do. See you next week for our next uh, installment in this series, Worship is Sacrifice.